I'm Louise Raw, and I'm an activist historian, which is a job I've made up for myself. So I've found that it's very important that historians who can see things happening politically from seeing the patterns of the past bring that into the now and into their work now. This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve-Smith. BBC Radio London show, London Lives. Can you tell me about that? So it's twice a month mm -hmm. on a Monday, and I've just got 25 minutes to run wild with figures from history that I want to talk about. So mm -hmm. I've done buildings, I've done events, I've done pubs, and I've done a lot of people, you know, from every period in history, people who are very recent, people back in the 1700s, the 1600s, they just let me do whatever I want to and mm -hmm. talk about anyone that I feel is interesting and generally either not known about or mm -hmm. there isn't enough known about them. So there's interesting and more exciting stories about their lives than the ones that we generally hear. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's tremendous fun. I've got the freedom to mm -hmm. do whatever I want. Yeah, that is, is exciting. Amazing. It is. It's who great. are the kind of who are the people that you've been most excited to work on and find out more about and tell people about? Oh, so hard to narrow it down. But I think a couple that I was thinking about recently, just in terms of how inspiring they were and how I want to watch the movie of their life. Um, a couple called Adelaide Knight and Donald Brown, who married in 1894, they were just amazing. She was a tiny little woman, but a suffragette, founded the British Communist Party, just casually, you know, yeah, working class women. Yes, when young, she founded mm -hmm. the Canning Town WSPU. So she's mm -hmm. like a really leading, she's a working class woman, very little education. Mm -hmm. Described as the leader of all the working class suffragettes, which is just astonishing. Mm -hmm. Went to prison mm -hmm. for suffragette activities. Mm -hmm. And what really always gets me about this couple is how amazingly supportive they were of each other. So she marries... Donald Brown, who's the son of a sea captain from Guyana. So he's black, so it's a mixed race relationship. I mean, in the 1890s, not mm. easy, right? Not mm. easy being a working class person in London anyway, mm -hmm. but dealing with that as well. He was so supportive of her, he took her name. I mean, nobody was doing that kind of feminist gesture. No men mm -hmm. were really. And helped her, she was disabled, so they did everything together. So they raised the kids together, they did housework shared everything which again 1890s is a pretty woke dude really is old mm. donald really handsome as well and only one photograph <laughs> but he's a bit of a hottie as old donald and she was told if when she was arrested if you agree to be bound over to keep the peace for a year you don't go to prison and i was thinking about this because i was thinking about courage and what it means and, and standing up for your beliefs now, I was thinking I would have totally let her off as a disabled woman in poor health with two young children if she'd said, look, all right, I'll agree to be bound over. But she had this conversation with her husband and their daughter recorded it. There's an unpublished manuscript, which is amazing, called Courage, quite rightly. And she said, she called him Daddy, and she said, Daddy, what shall I do? I don't want to be away from you and the little ones. That'll be agony, because they're very young, her kids as well. But I feel I can't be intimidated. If I give in, then other people, they'll do the same to other people and I won't be able to campaign. I won't be able to have any part in this political work, which is so important to me. What shall I do? I think I can bear it if I have your support. And he said something like, we've always stood up for one another. We've always been there for each other. Mummy, and he called her mummy. And we mustn't fail now, we've been put to the test. And this always makes me get all really emotional because I think yeah. it's so beautiful. And he mm. says, absolutely. So he looks after the children. I mean, in those days, they were absolutely dirt poor. Mm. And he was trying to work and look after two young children. She was in prison, terrible conditions. But she kept her spirits up by carving the words of the red flag with a hairpin on herself. Oh, wow. yeah. She's just incredible. They come out there together until his death 
in um, 49, incredibly. He then, as a foreman at the Woolwich Arsenal in 1921, gets awarded two medals because some rockets are combusting in a crate. Everyone else legs it, which is what I would have done, I had to tell you, <laughs> out of the warehouse. And he thinks, no, there's so much stuff here that's going to explode. It's going to be a huge incident. So he carries it outside so it can be put out, you know, risking his own life. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows about this couple. They're incredible. And as I say, she then just casually of an afternoon found the British Communist Party as well. And I can see the film, mm -hmm. can't you? Everything that they went through. Yeah. And yet we don't know about them. And I think we think, because we've accepted the establishment view of history, if you like, or the conventional view, the David Starkey view of history, as I like to call it, there's nothing going on but white men and kings, really. We've sort of accepted that and we think... Oh, there are stories about working class people, but they're probably really dull and really worthy and, you know, a bit depressing. And we want a bit of colour and we want a bit of excitement. There's so much colour and excitement in stories like this, though. Mm -hmm. You know, if only we knew it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's um, very inspiring. Very yeah, inspiring absolutely. to me, I think. And it's it's interesting, isn't it, the way... Because I've been, in, I've been in, interested in history for as long as I can remember. Mm. And... I just find it fascinating but mm. it's interesting when you get to kind of when I got to kind of university age and realizing that there's history is told in a certain way and there's a shape to history and and it's not absolute it's it's all dependent on what society values so do you think there's a link between the fact that do you think there's a reason basically why working class histories haven't been remembered absolutely because most historians were white well-off men you know it really is i know that sounds really simplistic mm. but that genuinely is the situation the only people with the education and the opportunity to write history were blokes from oxford and cambridge on the whole not not exclusively mm -hmm. but on the whole and going way back of course the only ones who were educated enough to be able to write and record history were not working class ordinary quote unquote working class people. So we've stayed with that and we've kept mining and remining those stories over and over again. And even when we got around to the working classes a bit in the 1950s, you know, with the Communist Party and socialist historians, you know, Eric Hobsbawm admitted, uh, thank you, at least he admitted it, wonderful historian, but he said in the 70s, I think, there's been criticism of myself and my sort of brother historians from feminists, and he wasn't massively keen on feminists, right? mm. but um, that we haven't really included, you know, we've sort of left out half the human race, really. And although we've done the working classes and we've res started to rescue them from obscurity, very, very important, hugely important, haven't been done before, really. We've sort of forgotten women. And then he says, yeah, sorry about that, basically, and carries on. Right. <laughs> now, at least he says it. He's about the only one who does. But he says, yes, I acknowledge there's some truth in this, but more or less continues playing the same furrow. And I've talked to historians, who, women historians, who were around them and trying to talk about women's history and really getting, even from those lefty boys, those mainly manly Marxist men, you know, well, there isn't much to say, is there really? I mean, a bit of knitting, a bit of embroidery. Were you doing much else? And that really was the feeling mm. that there wasn't much and that it was tokenistic really to talk about women oh it's just oh bless them let mm. the feminists have her let them talk about a woman here and there you know because we have to include them we know there was nothing really going on and this idea that there was this sort of permanent dark age for women and they were just not doing anything and then when women historians got a bit of a bite at the cherry you find out women were everywhere every social movement, everything that was happening, peasants' revolt included. Women were there, women were important, women were significant. And and yet we go back, don't we? We, we default and we reset back to the establishment version. And I always say it's like when I was a kid, there was a toy called a weeble, which was a little plastic bean thing. And it was weighted in the bottom, I suppose. And you couldn't push it over. It would bang. It was weeble swabble, but they don't fall down, you see, with the, with the jingle. I always say that that's what mainstream history is like. You push and you push and you try and you try and you try to get working class stories out there. But oing, it comes back. And David Starkey does another thing about Henry VIII. 
And when you try, I mean, it, it's changed somewhat. We do have a lot more social history. We have who do you think you are? So we look at people's families now and that's great. But if ordinary, you know, ordinary non-celebrity people are looking at their families, researching them and finding those brilliant stories, why doesn't that then go somewhere? Why isn't that then made into a series? Why, I mean, of course, not everyone can write a book, but why isn't someone trying to collect those stories and do something with them? So the mainstream doesn't really change, does it? We still get quite a lot of duchesses and quite a lot of queens. It's interesting, but it's so far from being the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's also the way that we think of history, isn't it? And it's the way we actually think of the way society works as well. And we sort of spotlight individuals and it's the people who are the most visible who mm, get the most airtime. Great individuals. It? So you wrote the book Striking a Light, the Bryant and May match women and their place in history. Yeah. And um, tell me about that, because that was more an ex example of a collective action, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's no great individuals there's no leaders in that and in fact that's what I was trying to rescue this story from the idea that it had been led by this one woman who was a socialist activist but not a match woman at all and when I came to it I thought that would be extraordinary if that was true really because it wasn't my experience of how strikes happen the idea that Annie Besant who was a quite well-known socialist would have come down to this match factory women who didn't know her and just sort of said, I say girls, you know, George Bernard Shaw and I, who are in the Fabian Society, have decided that you're all having a strike. No particular reason, just thought it would be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. And the idea that the women would have said, oh, God bless you, Mrs. Besson, absolutely, we'll do that. It, it's mad. It, it struck me, even when I first heard about it, as odd, and there must be something missing. It asked more questions than it answered. So that's how I started researching it. And then I realised that whole version of history was massively flawed. And in fact, Annie Besant didn't say she led the strike. Weird, isn't it? That It's been recorded like that. She was like shaggy going around going, it wasn't me. All through 1888 going, it wasn't me. I was nowhere near the factory. I didn't make them go on strike because she was accused of it. Mm -hmm. Because the press liked that idea of great individuals too, of course, and it suited the employer to go, oh yes, it was this one terrible lefty woman that made our otherwise perfectly happy employees go on strike. So that's what I was trying to do with the book, was fight against that great individual's idea and say, look, this isn't how strikes happened and it's certainly not how this strike happened. And because I wrote it in an academic style for an academic imprint of my publisher Bloomsbury I was able to do that I had that freedom to write about a group of people if I was writing a, a book for a more general readership a trade book as they call it I imagine it would have been a, a tougher sell because they probably might have said oh can we have one preferably sexy you know <laughs> match woman was there one that was quite pretty can we just talk about that and that's not at all what I wanted to do. That's not what I ever wanted to do. So I fought against that and I fought against it when I've been pitching for things as well. I've not managed to get them on Women's Hour yet, perhaps one day. It's surprising to me that I haven't really. And again, there was, oh, well, you know, if you were talking about one woman, perhaps that would be all right. But it's a bit niche. Niche is a word that you hear a lot when you're writing women's history. And I find that astonishing because most of our ancestors were working class. Most of us come from working class stock. There's an awful lot of working class people in the world. There's an awful lot of women in the world. You may have noticed one or two yourself. There's quite a few of us around, aren't there? There's quite a lot of Irish people and people descended from Irish people. There's nothing niche about it. And yet, I don't think a publisher would say, oh, we can't have another book about Queen Victoria. We've already got one. But there's nothing more niche than being one person, is there? One queen. That is extremely niche, but we never say that, do we? Oh, we can't have another book about Henry VIII. How many hundreds are there of books about one person? When it's aristocrats, that's all right. But when it's working class people, there's this huge resistance that you can write about a group of people. And you absolutely can. And in fact, it's the interplay between the women. It's their wonderful friendships. The fact that they were like a cool girl gang in the East End. And although everyone looked down on them, they stood up for each other and their take on it was you can put us down if you like you can say we're the scum of the earth because we're working class women because we're factory girls everyone looks down on factory girls but you know what we're going to shape our own identity and we're going to decide 
who's cool and guess what it's us and we're going to when we go out we're gonna buy communal hats we're gonna pay into they paid into what they called a feather club other factory girls did this as well communal hat club so you couldn't afford a really stunning hat on their wages they couldn't afford to eat let alone have really nice clothes but that doesn't mean they didn't want to look really good when they went out when they had the chance to go out so you paid in a penny and I guess when there was enough money Elsie would go down to the milliners and get the latest hat I'd love to know how they chose did they choose the most fashionable one you know the most modern one the most up-to-date one or did they think well it's got to suit a lot of people potentially so we'll go for something quite conservative I'd really that must have been a fraught decision right because there must have been one person saying well get me something in you know silver crepe or something and someone else going no 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 I've got to have I want loads of feathers but they did it somehow and if you had a hot date with a docker you got the hat you got to take the hat out and this is all fascinating to me and it's all part of them building a group identity so although they were incredibly up against it they were the match women and everyone knew the match women so they held their heads up high because they had this group identity that they forged themselves they had their own rules they always took great pride in knowing the latest musical songs of the day in fact there was a magistrate who complained about that because he said when they're on a night out you hear them late at night all the way back home singing you know Tara Boomdier or something which you know it, it w- would wake him up and he was really annoyed about it but again that's like knowing the latest grime lyrics I suppose that's pretty cool you know you're really something if you know the latest the yeah. only way you could hear it was to go to the music hall and memorise it so they were yes they reinvented themselves for women who were considered a little better than prostitutes by aristocratic men who were considered subhuman really people talk about women like this working class people like this as animals quote unquote particularly people from Irish heritage so to have all that against you and to say no we're going to take on this identity we're going to turn everything around we're going to revalorize it is the academic term for it we're going to be proud of who we are we're going to be proud of our friendships we're going to be proud of our group identity I think that's amazing. And you can't take them out of that context, really, because they built that. They built their own, like I say, their own cool girl gang. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's yeah, that word niche is, is really interesting, isn't <laughs> yes. it? Because um, in the book, you explore how um, this was really a really important moment in the in the labor movement mm. in in and in and in labor history in general mm. and how this was a precursor to a lot of like other union movements mm. um, and a really important moment so it's so interesting isn't it the way that women are often written out of that kind of yeah. world and always have been in in mm. the present day and also in in the past and actually these women had like a really important role to play really vital no one had won against such a huge and powerful employer before. There have always been strikes. It was the only weapon people had, really, poor working class people with no contracts of employment. What weapon do you have but to withdraw your labour? So, of course, they went on strike, but they didn't win. And women were often, and working class people, were often hungered back to work, just starved out, basically. Employers would have women arrested for striking, sentenced to hard labour. So it was a big deal to go on strike with no trade union and no support, no legal status to your strike. It was a very brave thing to do. But the idea that you could take on one of the country's biggest and most powerful employers, everyone knew who Bryant and May were. Everyone had Bryant and May matches in their house. There were factories all over the country. They were huge factories. They were designed to be impressive, like the one in Bow, which looks like a Gothic castle still to this day from the outside. It was a huge statement. We are important. We are the empire's biggest maker and manufacturer of matches, which were a key product as well. We think, oh, matches, who needs matches? Mm. But of course, in those days, no hot food, no hot water, no light, no heat, nothing without matches, let alone your pipe or your cigarettes. So it's a, a, a key trade. And for women, you know it's David and Goliath for women to take on an employer like that when they are so lowly regarded so lowly regarded Brighton May didn't even know how many people they were working for them they were irrelevant they were just fodder mm-hmm. they you know they weren't individuals at all they didn't know how much they paid them they had no clue until the strike happened for them to win working class people would have to be incredibly stupid for that to be lost on them you know if you were a docker 
from the same Irish heritage, from the same Eastern streets, from the same families a lot of the time. And it was lost on you that you weren't allowed to unionise and neither were these women. And oh, look, they've won their strike. They've fought for the right to unionise. They now have a trade union. They now have the biggest union of women and girls in the country. How, you know, unobservant would you have to be to not go, hmm, well, that's quite interesting and possibly quite relevant to our situation. And yet that is what historians have suggested. First, that the strike was forced on them by middle-class socialists who just felt like doing it for some random reason. And secondly, that it didn't influence, that the match women's strike did not influence what followed. So historians talk about the new unionism movement as dating from the great jock strike of 1889. And some books about that period don't talk about the match women at all. Some just say, well, it was a minor sign of what was to come but it's not important it's not relevant historians get the dates wrong the number of women who went on strike wrong a few dozen it was 1400 that's not really a small strike it's a big important strike and it certainly would have been noticed in the east end but that's so interesting to me that that's not really understanding how working class people work how work it's underestimating the intelligence of working class people that they wouldn't have been influenced by it and there's just no evidence for that all the evidence is the other way it's the dockers who took part in that strike contacted the match women immediately and said can you advise us can you send someone from the union to come and speak to us of course they would of course they would how did you do it we want to know how you did it and the dock strike leaders who wouldn't have exactly been raging feminists, you know, Irish macho dock workers from the Victorian East End. But they've said, those who've written books or those whose, whose memories have been recorded all said, yeah, it was the match girls. They went on strike, they won. It was amazing. It was a hugely important victory. And of course, we took inspiration from that. And historians just gone, nope, nope. La wow. la, not listening, can't see that, can't see that at all. Matchmen went on strike. The Dockers didn't go on strike successfully until a year afterwards, actually, there was a, a trial strike in between. Can't be at all connected. It's amazing the hoops that historians, without realising it, have gone through to take women out of the picture because that's what they expect to see. I'm not suggesting it's a deliberate. Thing. It's worse than that in a way. It's subconscious. Absolutely. It's yeah. blinkered. We, mm -hmm. we don't expect to see women doing anything significant. So we will try to unsee it when yeah. it's right there in front of us. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm thinking about um I'm thinking about this idea of statues and the idea of blue plaques and you know, the physical way that we remember history in mm. our streets. And it absolutely spotlights individuals. And you just have to imagine that for, I mean, this is one case um, and it's an amazing act of, of collective resistance mm. and people coming together. But you wonder when you see other statues, are there similar conversations there? Are there similar stories where the, there's a line in the History Boys play where the teacher's talking to the class and he's saying, he's looking at a statue from, I think it's remembering the dead of the First World War, and he's saying history is to remember, but it's also to forget. Absolutely. Because history does this spotlight. And when you spotlight something, you shine a light on one thing, but you put the rest into shadow, don't you? So it's, it is amazing the way, and then the way that works. And then I'm also thinking about something that somebody said to me recently, which was about sort of, they were talking about um, demos and also putting things on social media that are political and sort of saying, you know, well, you can do all this, but at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Actually, politicians are the ones that decide, but, you know, they don't really care anyway. And I've been thinking about this because actually collective action does bring about change. I mean, this story is just incredible because even just thinking about that thing of of being given, of being punished for going on strike, of course, that doesn't exist anymore and that's because people have come together and fought so it's not to say that there's a deliberate link it's not like to to go into a conspiracy theory thing however it is interesting that there's a link between the way that history is remembered and the and the fact that that working class history is forgotten and the fact that working class people don't know their own history and don't have an immediate 
recall for times when collective action has brought about change and therefore can't sort of put their hand to that information easily versus, you know, all the facts that we know that are considered general knowledge about individuals like Queen Victoria, like Henry VIII. So it's really interesting, isn't it? It's so important. If you cut people off from their history, from their stories, they don't know what they can achieve. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think, although, yeah, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories, although sometimes these days you look around and think, blimey, I really should get on board with that. There's much more going on than even Dan Brown ever imagined. But it is, on the other hand, certainly true that the Conservatives have underfunded and right-wing university leaderships have closed down working-class studies departments. It's one of the first things that often right-wing governments actually around Europe will do. So somebody knows the importance of that working-class stories to working-class people. And you look at the way that, I mean, Michael Gove used to talk, didn't he, about teachers as this grey Marxist blog blob not blog blob <laughs> and say oh you know we, we he, look at how he changed the history curricula that wasn't unintentional the way he was pushing to take anyone who wasn't sort of white and British out of it and go back to a more old-fashioned more date space more battles and kings and queens view you know he's a mate of David Stark I sound like I'm obsessed with David Stark I don't I keep talking about it but he influenced that curriculum and people don't realise that. People don't think of him as being a right-wing historian. He's not always described as a right-wing historian, but anyone from the left, oh, yes, you know, lefty. We, we don't see it. We don't see that bias. But there's a reason the establishment preserves and celebrates and burnishes its history and really, really, you know, statues and portraits and plays and books... It's, it is um, an expression of power. We are the people who matter. We're the people you can rely on to lead us. We're the ones who know what's going on. We're the ones who make the decisions. What your friend said about, well, it's really politicians who make decisions. Oh, they'd be rubbing their hands together with glee, the establishment. Yes, keep thinking that, please. Brilliant, that really suits us. But if you, and I've had it said, oh, working class people have never achieved anything. It's all David Starkey said. The history of Europe is a history of white men until about five minutes ago. They were the power players and to suggest anything else is to falsify. That is deeply untrue. He will be aware that it is because as a historian, you're trained to look at subjectivity and objectivity. He's giving a view he wants to give. There's a reason why he's giving that view, not just because he's got a hundred million books out about Henry VIII and he wants you to think that's the only history that's worth knowing. You know, that's political. That's very political and it's very biased. But who campaigned and got rid of slavery? Who got rid of segregation in America? Who got the vote for women? Who built the modern trade union movement? All of these things and so many more were done by working class people, people of color and women. And it's amazing that we know this, right? We all know this. And yet we still say, when David Starkey makes a comment like that, and there are other, other historians are available, <laughs> we're similarly um, irritating to me views. We just nod and we think, yeah, that's probably true. In some way, that's probably true. And to me, it's all part of this big concept that I think some working class people still have, that somehow we don't really know how to run a country. We wouldn't really know what to do if we were in power. It's almost like we're the kids and the establishment of the grown-ups. And you might get annoyed with mummy and daddy, but really they know what they're doing. And if they weren't there, the whole thing would fall apart. It's not true. You know, look at the state of the country under the Conservatives. You know, we were taught, weren't we? Well, you know, you David Camerons and your Boris Johnsons raised on the playing fields of our public schools to be brave and heroic and to lead. And excuse me, David Cameron messed everything up and ran off. And Boris Johnson's done that as well. And yet we are trained to believe that these people somehow have this either instinctive or trained, because they're upper class, they have this training, they're trained to be our leaders. We're still there. People thought that in the 30s and 40s and 50s, people really believed that, oh, well, I may not like all their policies, but 
I have to vote Conservative because they've been trained to, to rule. They know what they're doing and really, you know, we don't. But we're still there. We think we ended deference in the 50s. I don't think we did. I think we're still there. Absolutely. And I suppose you you come to realise as well, don't you, that if you if you are as obsessed as history as certainly I am and, mm -hmm. and by the sound of things you mm -hmm. do, um, that history is it's it's a way of telling things. In French, the word for history is the same word as for story. Because that's that's what history is. It's a it's a story, it's a version. Exactly. And so unearthing your own, whether it's working class stories or also women's stories it's just amazing how women get written out of history um you know learning i studied english literature at university and learning about um 19th century american literature and how actually it was it was a woman harriet beecher stowe who was one of the best sellers of the yeah. of the century i mean some of the things that she wrote she was famous for writing uncle tom's cabin which was full of racist stereotypes um and being a bestseller doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's great literature however it is amazing the way it was much lesser known men like mark twain and walt whitman who were later canonized in the 20th century as being these quintessential american writers um and and she's just oh yeah oh yeah she did sell loads but yeah i mean just you That's know whatever you know what i women's mean women's writing yeah chiclet, exactly we say now don't we exactly we still do the same if a man's written a book big important serious um black cover big macho looking white letters on it and if a woman's written a book pink sequins it, i think we still do that we still give a gravitas to men and to male writers and my goodness the way people sanctify male writers and filmmakers it's this oh gosh they're, they're icons aren't they they're absolutely worshipped in a way that we just don't do about women and in a way that oh complete sidebar but I knew a very good friend of mine worked for Stanley Kubrick now he worked very near where I lived at the time and this man is absolutely canonized isn't he Stanley Kubrick not a fan not a fan of him as a person but we don't hear what he was really like at all we hear was oh this legendary mysterious genius this incredible man we build men up as artists, as almost mythical creatures in our culture, don't we? And, and as leaders and as generals and as kings, almost not human, almost superhuman. And women were always like, yeah, but you know, she, her marriage didn't work out, did it? Or she's carrying a few extra pounds. <laughs> you know, Queen Victoria, yeah, but went a bit mad, didn't she, over, over Albert? We just pull women down and we don't give them that status. And we're so ready to canonize and crown men Exactly, because and it, you can see how it all kind of links up as well. Because when you think about the way, if women aren't remembered, then then they're how not remembered. Know? Do you know what I mean? How and can and we it, know what and we're it, capable of exactly. And it kind of um, you get that. I mean, if you take the argument to its logical conclusion, and I've I've definitely come across this argument. Although it's one of those pinch me moments when it does. But when people say, well, if women are equal to men how come there was never a female jesus or or a female shakespeare you know what i mean yes, I know when exactly that argument gets taken yeah. to its logical conclusion and it's obviously <laughs> massively frustrating if anyone ever says that but but it's it sort of i think that subconsciously we do have a little bit in our culture of that already you know men men have so many role models and so many that their greatness exactly. and their masculinity exactly. are not kind of questioned and exactly. and it's it's amazing isn't it as well um the way that people fall back into the old ways of looking at things because actually since kind of it was the 1960s and 70s onwards wasn't it that feminists started to look at women and 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 bring them back into the into history and and this this tradition of of, of revisiting obscure um women that have been forgotten by history and kind of re-establishing them into the canon is 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 good work that's been done for a long time by feminists and so it's amazing isn't it that 50 years later we're sitting here it's and it still hasn't incredible. seemed to kind of it's incredible because nobody really wants them in the canon they're a sort of side issue or women's issues ladies things slightly over there somewhere not not part of they're not really let in and embrace because if they were when we find out about significant women everyone will go right all bets are off we've got to rewrite everything 
and we'll start again and we'll write this woman in and these women will never be left out of history again. We don't do that though, do we? We don't do that. You would still think the average person who maybe doesn't read a lot of history might be forgiven, could be forgiven, for still thinking that women's history was sort of nothing, 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 suffragettes, nothing, nothing, uh, Second World War, nothing, burning their bras, and that's it. Nothing else has ever happened. And that's still, you know, when I go into schools and I talk to kids, and when do you think women started working? And, oh, I don't know, Miss, around the Second World War or around the 1960s, or it's very recent. I probably thought that growing up. Women have always worked, always worked. Medieval women worked on building sites. Why don't we know that? Medieval women were the alewives. They brewed the beer, very important when you couldn't drink the water, which is a very good excuse for drinking beer all day as well. Small beer, why not? So really vitally important. Women owned bell foundries, women sometimes as widows because they took over from their husbands. But women were doing incredible things. Why don't we know that? Why don't we? And does it matter? People say, oh, well, yes, that's all very interesting, I suppose, but it doesn't really matter. It's not really relevant. It's in the past. But psychologists have tested this. And if you sit down with young women and give them some good female role models, just tell them a few stories, even show them a picture of a woman in an interesting role or women doing something, you know, um, important and you then test their self-esteem before and after it measurably measurably increases almost immediately it's incredible obviously it doesn't happen for men if you give them male role models for boys for young men because they already have them but this is really important so in the reproduction of knowledge we're factoring in low self-esteem for women because we're telling them well you're not really very important sorry and what's it like when you go to school? What's it like for Muslim girls? What's it like for Muslim boys? What's it like for people of colour to go to school and have the Michael Gove approved syllabus which says you are irrelevant to your nation's history? Oh, thanks very much. So, you know, thanks for showing up, but you have yeah. no part in our island story. You have no part in our nation's story. I'm not going to talk about the Muslim soldiers who fought and died in World War II. We're not going to talk about Nora Nayat Khan, who was the first female radio operator in occupied France, for goodness sake, and who, who was killed by the Nazis, fighting for freedom, voluntarily chose to do the most dangerous job in the war as a woman. Only Muslim women with a statue in Britain to the day I think why are we not talking about those yeah because goodness how hurtful it must be to not be reflected to not have the cultural mirror held up to your own face not to see yourself as as part of the country I think it's on a personal level I think it must it's, it's exclusionary but it's also very unpleasant and hurtful I would think mm -hmm. to feel that you're not part of this country and I also think it really encourages racism. If history, this is a big statement, I'm going to make it anyway. If history was really taught properly and most in a way that most people were able to engage with, that most boys and girls were able to pick up on and really understand, I don't think you could be racist. Because if you really genuinely understood the contribution of people of colour, if you really understood there was a black community in this country going back to the Romans, that there were significant and important figures in this country, if you really truly understood and had all the facts, you couldn't. All the racist arguments are shot down completely. That is a big statement. It Louise. is a huge statement. But I like it. I'm probably going to regress it. But I like but it. I no, I think that's a really interesting. <laughs> no, I think that's fantastic. It's very original, but I think it's. I definitely agree. I think. I think it's really interesting talking to you because it's the our understanding of history people think of history sometimes as niche as well but um and i have heard the argument that we all understand the world in different ways and people who are very interested in science see that as kind mm. of making the world go around and mm. you know or who have a yeah. kind of a really sure. natural kind of affinity sure. but as a history fan i think that so much can be explained by history, so much can be understood by history and who we are and why we're here and and also that kind of structure of storytelling that's sort of imposed on us or that we impose mm. on ourselves and, and that we that we produce. So yeah, I really like that statement. I think it's I think it's a really interesting one because of course these match women were um, you know, to go back to the to the match women, mm. they were 
course they were Irish and in mm. the 19th century they were thought of as as being as being black so a negroid race yeah. quite mm-hmm. unquote and of course that's where the horrors of eugenics mm-hmm. begin as well I talked to some American history professors really recently on, on um, I was lecturing on a um, a course for history teachers actually people who want to go into teaching history and it was really fascinating because I hadn't known that American history stops after World War Two, so they don't teach the Vietnam War really amazing and this was a revelation to me and they said well of course because we want to construct this narrative that America is great and you can't really do that if you go much beyond oh World God, War II and if yeah. you're going to the Vietnam War and I, my mind was blown by this completely but I also said to them so you must in America work with a lot of people who were right wing and who were reactionary and who were Trump supporters and they said yes and I said but do you work with any history teachers who are and they said, if you really understand American history, you can't support the extreme right wing. You can't say, make America great again, because you understand that there's always been massive issues, that segregation was not great, that a lot of American history is not. So again, I think it's absolutely vital that we know our human story, because that's all it is. It's knowing our true story who we really are, how we got here, mm-hmm. how awful life was under the British Empire. Would we be in this situation at the moment with Brexit? I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to mention that. <laughs> the unmentionable. If there weren't people who, although there's a, a left-wing case for it as well, but we can't deny that there are people who think we're getting an empire back, that there still is one, and we're somehow getting it back not what Brexit is about, mm-hmm. it's not what it's mm-hmm. ever been about. Mm-hmm. And if we knew what the British Empire was really like, a lot of those people, when I talk to people who do hold racist views, which I don't sort of do in my front room, but you know, on social media, <laughs> you think you would have had a terrible time in the empire. You wouldn't have been like a general. You wouldn't have been Churchill. You'd have been, you know, dying in some awful war or living in some slum. You yeah. would not have been treated well. You would not have been embodying the glory of empire but we don't realize this and if we knew the truth it would be much 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 harder to hark back to this glorious idea i've never thought about it Mm. but i think you're so right because i guess what remains when it all rots away is just the 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 propaganda and the you know just the kind of exactly absolute tin pot dreams that were sold to people you know telling people oh if you go off and fight in world war one you'll just be like you'll be fighting for this glorious idea and of course it's like nothing um so you you created the um the match women's festival mm. as well didn't you to kind of, yeah to, to oh really yes well i wanted to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the strike I thought that oh, this is such an inspiring story. I, I realised as I went along, never imagined, you know, I left school at 15, I never imagined I would have a PhD or write a book or that wasn't for me, you know, that wasn't the sort of thing I was ever going to do. But in the process of doing all that and of sort of stalking and pursuing the match women <laughs> through history, I realised this is such an inspiring story. My goodness, when I was a young trade union student, if I had known about these women, this would have done me a world of good. It would have really been useful for me. It's practically useful. They're a good practical example when you're having a rough day. Well, you know, my jaw is not rotting from fossy jaw. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not starving. I'm not living in a sort of black beetle infested. Yeah, it's great to have that. This is the kind of role models, again, that we talk, Mm -hmm. talk about men having. So I thought, okay, one good way to celebrate it after I start to meet some relatives as well to celebrate them and to bring them into it would be to have a little event and then I realised no one else was going to do it for me which is I tried to initially to get someone else to do it and I ended up doing it and yeah I was going to do one and it's seven it's uh, the seventh one now so it's a festival like no other, mostly because I'm quite lazy at organising it. So I, I like to say it's very friendly and relaxed. It's mostly because my standards of professionalism are negligible. So I just spin it, spin it as being <laughs> very sure friendly and relaxed. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think I can confidently say the only feminist, anti-fascist, pro-trade union 
um, independent London festival that welcomes women and well-behaved men and children. And we, yeah, there's nothing else really like it. We do do history, but we also have campaigners from today. We have women who are making a difference today. And we have the occasional token bloke. Michael Rosen is our token bloke this year. And as long as he behaves himself, we, we love having him come and talk. But yeah, it's um, people, lots of children do come to it. We try and make it really, really friendly for children and for parents because a lot of women can't get to events like this, can they? Because they can't get childcare. We also make it anxiety friendly, which is a weird concept. But in the process of organising it, I realised that festivals, events in general, social events in general, I suppose, are organised on what is quite um, a male and quite a male way for extroverts. That it's it's obvious, I suppose, isn't it? That big festivals and events like that are for extroverts they're not for introverts but why not for goodness sake I'm an introvert I'm just one who talks a lot but I am an introvert why shouldn't we be able to have great days out I wouldn't go to now to say a really huge music festival because oh my god you know the people of the queues are the oh it would just do my head in completely and I had a guest one year say, I'm really sorry I couldn't come in the end because of my social anxiety. And I thought, oh no, that's terrible because we do have a lot of women who come on their own to it and I'm really proud of that. But I thought, right, we can do more. And then I started to think, why just no one think about this? We think about accessibility. We think about physical disability, but particularly when you're doing a festival which does tackle tough issues and very unpleasant things that happen to women and happen to people. Why don't we consider that a lot of guests might have some level of trauma or anxiety? How hard is it to think about them? And it turns out it's not very hard at all. I don't know why other people haven't caught on to this yet. And I really want to spread this idea. So we do the simplest things. We have really friendly female stewards. If you come on your own and you're feeling a bit awkward and you want to talk to somebody, they will you can talk their ear off. If you want to be left the heck alone, they will also do that. You can sit in a corner on your own, listen, not participate. No one's going to go, come on, cheer up. Why aren't you dancing? Why? Well, we have music in the evening. We're not, I'm not going to ask anyone to, you know, throw their hands in the air or give us a big round of applause or tell us what they think. I'm not going to force any questions on you. You can sit in the front row. You will not be picked on. We have a quiet zone if it gets a bit much you can go and just chill out and we've got a room that we keep completely quiet so you can just sit on your own and that's so trivial really there's such minor tweaks they don't cost anything really to do we also have a steward who's mental health trained just in case the, the subject matter gets a bit heavy because although we're very light-hearted in how we cover it and we're very humorous there's some tough issues so easy to do and when I have people say I wouldn't normally be able to go to an event like this but I can, I can go and I can feel welcomed and I'm not going to be judged and it's friendly and it's supportive and it's sisterly and we have men as well. I thought this is wonderful. That was so rewarding. And it just does make me think again, why is everything, why are festivals generally for people who want to be loud and want to, and are very confident and are very social. You can be an introvert, but still want to socialize just in a way that feels safe for you. I think that's a really interesting concept. I'm very close to my sister and I'm more extroverted than she is, but I know she's an introvert and we have conversations about this kind of thing. And I, I think that it's not something that's, you know, like you say, it, it it's not a, it can, it, it gets trivialized and, and mm. that kind of approach to things um, can seem like a detail rather than a big thing, but it makes a massive difference to whether somebody's mm. going to, necessarily come so and it's yeah so, and that's it's about, so it's about creating a, a good space so simple to do and people are, oh well snowflakes and if you're introvert then just stay at home but that's not what being an introvert mm -hmm. really is I mean it's a term that some people don't like anyway but that's not what it is it doesn't mean that you want to just sit on your own in a room mm -hmm. it just means that you don't want to be overwhelmed maybe you'd like to just come on your own and and, and go when you feel yeah, like it and pop in and out, out yeah. and just not have anyone force you yeah. to participate mm -hmm. so yeah it's, it's really soon anyone who organizes events i would urge to think about that and get in touch with me and i will give you free advice because i think it's so important and it's such an easy thing to do it turns out mm. yeah 
brilliant that's really good and it's on um well this year it was on in june 29th of june yeah. and next year 2020 it will be the 27th of june i think if i'm calculating correctly and it'll it's on a saturday and it should again be in our lovely venue bow arts bow arts um trust courtyard really close to the match factory which is fantastic because people can pop along and see where it all started so yeah yeah fantastic and to have it yeah and you're also doing it in july you're doing a, a walking tour as part of marxism festival as well which That's i think right. sounds really interesting because it's a way for people to actually see history and you know this i think being in a place and learning about something is a really fantastic interesting thing so and again it's going to be quite an easy um walking tour we're not going to go miles we're going to look at things which are quite close to each other so again it's not too exhausting and it's not too much but yes so many interesting sites and important sites in that little area around bow that again because they're just working class history we don't celebrate and don't look at enough i mean the, there's a clock to mini lansbury i could i won't could talk about all day another fascinating eastern woman we hardly ever hear about there's a memorial clock to her that no one knows is there there's the gladstone statue which is right by bow arts actually on the bow road and one of his hands is red which is something that you see occasionally people pick up on that and say well that's interesting why is this statue's hand red and it's to do with the match women again believe it or not the statue was put up by Bryant and may because they were sucking up to the then prime minister basically made the match women pay for it match women not happy about being forced to contribute from their incredibly low wages to this statue Bryant and may could have afforded it on their own so on the unveiling it said that you know, they were having this really posh unveiling and people giving speeches. And the match women charged the statue, apparently cut themselves, dripped their blood on the statue and said, our blood paid for this. This is before the strike. What a publicity gesture, it's amazing. What an incredible piece of political theatre. And they would have done it with hat pins, I presume, because you wouldn't really have had anything else on you, but the hat pins were lethal in those days, absolutely lethal. They were hat pin deaths and hat pin murders. They were very long very sharp and at some time i don't know when it first started possibly when the factory was turned into housing somebody started painting gladstone's hands red and it's supposedly some kind of reference to that which i think is brilliant wow that is amazing the council are so sick of it they stopped bothering to clean it off because every time they cleaned it off which was expensive obviously to properly clean the statue somebody just did it again amazing <laughs> there you go that's collective if you're action, out there that's... and you did that let me know i will not tell the popo i won't tell the police but i'm dying to know who did it <laughs> though obviously i would never conceal criminal damage i should make that very clear too <laughs> <laughs> and then in september you're doing a talk um with the friends of highgate highgate cemetery in highgate cemetery very excited about that yeah. i don't think i could actually do it by a grave wearing a veil but if i can i will yes i didn't know that there were friends of highgate cemeteries and that you could have talks within the cemetery so i'm hugely excited about that talking about matchroom and also eleanor marks who i love and if i was going to allow a great individual which i refuse to do but if i was eleanor marks is quite something but and obviously Highgate Cemetery, but the reason she's quite something is because she was a socialist who walked it like she talked it and she understood that she herself was not important as one person. She was important in what she could do for other people, for trade unions and for working class people. So I'll be talking a little bit about her and a bit about match women as well, because she, people think she was involved in the match women's strike. She wasn't, just because it was too quick, I think. I think she would have been. But afterwards, she was asked by trade unions in Ireland to go and speak for them about unionising. And they had this, what I love about this is the sort of details I like, they had this grand procession, she was to enter the city and it was all marching bands and stuff. But she was early and it wasn't, nobody was there, the bands weren't there, so she had to go back and do it again. I like that, that's marvellous. <laughs> So she's sort of involved in the match women's strike, although although latterly, and you know, she would have been supportive of it. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's twenty sixth of September. That's right. Um, and people can look up Friends of Highgate Summit yeah. to find out more. 
Fantastic. Um, thanks so much for sitting down with me, Louise. It's been really it's good. It's been delightful. We always finish with um, three questions then. Uh, the first of which is, how can people directly support you and what you do? Oh, that would be nice. Money. No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do a Tommy Robinson and give my PayPal. <laughs> no. Well, I'm on social media a lot, and I apologise for the language in advance. But do look at at Louise Raw Author, which is all one word on the Twitter. And yeah, just Louise Raw, I think, on Facebook. I do a lot of history on those sites as well. I talk about my BBC Radio London, London Lives segment, which I do a couple of times a month. I post links to that and I talk about who I'm going to be talking about and who I have talked about on that. Obviously, I do, it doesn't hurt if you buy my book. I won't object to you buying my book, Striking a Light, available at all the bookshops. And yeah, you can follow what I'm doing pretty readily on Twitter. I do a lot of talks. Come along to those. Have me in to talk to your school. Let me indoctrinate. Let me talk to those children. <laughs> Obviously, I would never indoctrinate children. That'd be a terrible thing to do. But they won't indoctrinate themselves, Ringer. They won't. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Social media is a really good way mm-hmm. to follow me. Yeah, brilliant. Um, the next question then is, what can people read or watch that's something that's inspired you in the past? Mm, what can they read or watch? There are so many great books out there. Oh, I can't think of the names of any of them. I'm completely blank. There's a fantastic book called The Struggle for the Breaches. It's a wonderful reconstruction of women being pushed pushed out of history and pushed out of society. It doesn't help you much if I tell you it's by someone called Anna. I think it's Anna Clark or Anna Clarkson, but The Struggle for the Breaches is a wonderful book that absolutely everybody should read. And history-wise... Amanda Vickery is a great historian. I love working with her. I worked on something she did called Women in Power. She was fantastic to work for because she completely understands the working class story and the importance of working class women in history. So watch everything she does. And while there are some great podcasts, yours obviously, there's some fantastic <laughs> feministy and history podcasts out there as well. There is a lot of content. You've just got to look for it. You've got to know it's there, have faith that it's there and and hunt for it a bit. Definitely. Um, And then the final question then is about people getting involved um, more generally in um, activism. And we've talked a little bit about the rise of the far right and um, how the world isn't getting nicer not is it no it's not great at the minute is it (laughs) um what would what would you advise somebody who's maybe listening and has never done any activism themselves Mm. how to how would you advise somebody to get involved well i first i would say do it because it's much less depressing to do it than to not do it and just sit around feeling really pissed off and depressed i absolutely recommend it it's really cheering go on a good old demonstration not with like the far right don't don't do that <laughs> do it do it with those opposing them yeah. much nicer people but there are organizations like stand up to racism you can follow them on social media and you can follow them on twitter and facebook stand up to racism they're a national organization um who are amazing actually and who do this stuff every day unite against fascism as well at uaf on twitter incredible people they confront this stuff day in day out sometimes at risk to themselves they organize huge national demonstrations i got to speak on top of a fire engine this year in london i'm so excited about that i was briefly cool to my son for about five minutes because of that um those demonstrations are wonderful they're london as i want to see it they're this country as i want to see it everyone coming together standing up against racism standing up against hatred they're really important they happen at least once a year you can find them and there are branches of organizations like this and other anti-fascist and anti-racist organizations are available find a good one follow them on social media find out if there's a branch locally because there are a lot of these things have little local branches and local meetings as we saw when we had the far right campaigning for the European elections and we had people confronting amazing turnouts for people standing up and saying, you don't represent me. You can get involved really easy and they will welcome you. 
again, if you're an introvert and you're thinking, oh God, I don't really want to go along shouting on a demonstration. Well, you can just stand at the back. You know, no one's going to ask you to get up on stage and speak. Come with a friend, have a little look. If you know, pop in, pop out, that's absolutely fine. These organisations will completely welcome you as well because we're always looking for new people to join us. So no one's going to say, who the heck are you? They're going to say, brilliant, thank you so much. And they're going to tell you ways you can get involved as well. Just email them, contact them say how can I get involved but do it definitely do it you will feel so much better you'll meet some you'll make some new great friends as well but you will you'll meet some people who are just who think like you and you'll feel so much less despairing about the world than if you just sit at home and watch question time and think oh my god it's all just awful it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness one of my favorite expressions it's so much better for you for your soul for your mental health to do something against the things that upset you and annoy you than to just let them overwhelm you. Absolutely. So well spoken. Thank you so much, Thank Louise. You. It's Thank been you. Thank you for being done with me. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Rena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Jibran Farah. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi and Joshua Lose Challenge. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at future underscore heist. Thank you.